Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Evelyn Farkas, a national security advisor who served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia and the former candidate in New York's 17th Congressional District. Evelyn Farkas, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. The U.S. is at a turning point right now with the Biden administration set to take office on the 20th of January 2021. And over these last four years, the Trump administration has been criticized for failing to address domestic and foreign threats. As Joe Biden prepares to become president, what do you see as these key issues that he needs to be prepared to confront on day one of his presidency? Right. Well, first of all, Edward, obviously confronting the coronavirus, the pandemic itself, so the health crisis, as well as the associated economic crisis is top of his agenda. I would say it should be followed closely by, or you know, hand in hand should be dealing with the, cri- the crisis in our environment. And his appointment of Secretary Kerry to be the climate czar, I don't think that's the actual term, but his climate advisor is very wise because this is another one of these global global situations where concerted action is required, just as concerted action is required on the pandemic. I, I could also argue on the economic front. So those are kind of the macro or the, the, the top issues he needs to deal with. But I think in your question was embedded a concern that he has about democracy. And so I think the larger context within which he's going to tackle those three crises is the standoff between democracy and autocracy. And this is something that he's spoken, that President-elect Biden has spoken very clearly about. He said in a foreign policy article and a couple of times in speeches as well, that you know within the first year or so of his administration, he will hold a democracy summit. What he he's saying there in the context of that is that, first of all, he's going to restore democracy in America. So he's going to take legal action, political action, and if I can say cultural action to kind of restore not just the laws governing our democracy, but the culture and the norms. And then secondly, accompanied by, you know, at the same time, virtually, he will also reach out to our international allies, our treaty-bound allies, our partners, our friends, and even our adversaries to declare that America is back. We are, you know, to date, the strongest democracy worldwide, and we are going to defend our democracy. We're going to defend the democracy of our allies and partners. We defend the rights of peoples living in non-democratic countries to have their human rights respected. And we will also help other countries who are interested in becoming democratic. You mentioned about those big issues like coronavirus, the environment, things that are going to need global cooperation. And we saw before this recording, the Chinese foreign minister has come out and talked about how 
they see the potential of a steady transition in US-China relations now, particularly on, they mentioned coronavirus and working with the US on that. There's a lot of talk about how certain countries should be handled and whether they're adversaries. And China's one of those that has been, by the Republican Party, really targeted as an adversary. How do you think Joe Biden should go about approaching these relations with China? And also, in a way, as you would have dealt with when you were working for the Defense Department, Russia as well, because these are countries which, while there might be adversarial issues, they are important in addressing other global problems that exist. Right. So first of all, I think it's really important to be clear on what the national security assessment is of the threat posed by China and and Russia. I think we can talk about them together because there's also a political conversation about Russia and China, which is not always grounded in the reality. So what I want to say about the threat is the immediate urgent threat has been and continues to be posed by Russia. Why? Because that is the only country that has directly intervened to try to affect the outcome of U.S. elections, everything from stealing information and weaponizing it, as we know, through our media and on the Internet, to manipulating American voters, American civilians to go out and demonstrate or to vote differently. Again, this is all, these are all things Russia has done. Russia has also um, put bots on our infrastructure. Now the Chinese, there are reports that they have also done this. I'm not as familiar with it having not been in government um, the last four years when I believe the Chinese really ramped up some of these efforts and some of it is mirroring the Russians. But the Chinese objective they have not been as aggressive about trying to weaken America and take down America as a democracy. For the Russians, it is what they are aiming to do. And we need to be clear about that, and we need to address the Russian threat head on. The Chinese, yes, there's also a threat there posed by the Chinese. They have been, for a long time, conducting economic espionage on American corporations, and they are trying to get the jump on America economically and in the Asia Pacific region in, in, in particular, although they also have global ambitions. Their foreign policy under President Xi has become much more aggressive and competitive vis-a-vis -vis the United States. So China is, is a threat and a country that needs to be managed carefully, but the more immediate one is Russia because they are higher on the risk-taking um, front. They take higher risks. Just one other quick thing, if I can, because I said those are the, the threats, you know, from a hold a cold assessment, national security assessment. Politically, the Republican Party has been hampered by President Trump's weird, close relationship with Vladimir Putin and the Russian government, and therefore has oftentimes deflected from criticism of the Russian government and Putin to put a greater emphasis on what China is doing, or to somehow say, well, China is doing the same thing, so it doesn't matter what Russia is doing. They are both threatening United States national security interests. As I said before, the Russians more aggressively, more directly, and, and therefore we need to deal with it also because of the danger of their military doctrine and the fact that they are on our energy grid, they are on our water grid, they are on our nuclear grids, they have tried to get into our election systems, and that supports a way that they would fight the United States if they deemed us to be an adversary. And you know we can go into what what a war would mean for them or why they would go to war, but they are much more dangerous at this point in time than the Chinese government is.
to look at those two nations and and the threats that they pose separately because as you mentioned there's two different approaches and, and risks that exist there and on different levels you've talked about how one area Biden is expected to differ from Donald Trump, and you mentioned it in your answer there, is by taking this new aggressive tone against Russia. That is going to involve his administration taking a completely different steps when it comes to their approach, their relationship diplomatically with that nation. How can the new administration begin to rein in what America sees as these problematic actions that are being committed by Russia. First of all, I want to correct kind of um, your use of the word aggressive. I don't think that um, I apply that to, of course, the Russians and the Chinese. uh, President-elect Biden will take a firmer approach, not an aggressive approach vis-a-vis Russia, because indeed what the Russians respect and understand is when people talk clearly with them, when when they speak honestly and firmly. And when we say these are the things that we accept, this is what international law permits. It does not permit you going and poisoning your your or other people's citizens using weapons of mass destruction in other countries, much less you know what they're doing domestically, because that's also a front where we could be more outspoken as a nation. It, what I mean by that are human rights abuses occurring inside of Russia. But the other component of it is then offering, you know, standing up for our values, standing up for our interests, very clearly Uh, you know, explaining to the Russians what is acceptable behavior, what is unacceptable, and then trying to make deals with them. And we have been able to make deals with the Russians. You know, in the Obama administration, we we extended New START. Um, We we renegotiated New START. We we hope to extend New START um, in the Biden administration, or I should say we as a country. Um, and, And so, that is going to be important, but you can't make progress, I believe, in arms control if you aren't honest and if you don't call your partner out for their transgressions. And the Russians for a long time have been um, playing cute with both conventional, and I was responsible for oversight of conventional arms control in the Department of Defense, both conventional and nuclear arms control. And so I think that is a better basis for actually making progress with the government uh, in the Kremlin. Um, that is to say, being firm and honest and upfront. Throughout the 2016 campaign and Trump's presidency, the Democratic Party, national security advisors and experts like yourself raised concerns about Donald Trump's relationship with Russia. But it ultimately was, in a way, to no avail because he was elected in 2016. He wasn't removed from office at any point, although, as we know, that's an incredibly hard thing for any president to be removed from office. And he managed to push his agenda through. Why do you think Americans weren't phased in a way by individuals like yourselves, the Democrats, who talked about this relationship that he had with Russia? So I'm not going to pretend to know exactly why so many Americans were able to ignore the fact that this was a president not only letting, I mean, not only not calling the Russians out for their interference, but actually helping them cover it up and asking for new interference from Ukrainians, including the Ukrainian president, for which, as you know, he got impeached, but was not thrown out of office by the U.S. Senate. Because for too many players in our political scene and for American citizens with slightly different motivations, it was too too advantageous for them to keep Donald Trump where he was and keep themselves and their party in power. 
And we do have to step back and understand, yes, the Russians may very well have helped decisively, helped Donald Trump decisively. I mean, they certainly did help him win his elections. And we don't know the full story of what happened there. But I think the reason for the starting point for giving him a bit of a pass is the fact that the elections were close. They, you know, in many people's estimation, never should, it never should have been, it never should have been that close. And, and then on top of it, you have this very active, aggressive disinformation on the right. I mean, really the left isn't, isn't as aggressive, isn't as active as the right has been and continues to be. And so there was a, a great effort using actually tactics that the Russian government uses all the time in their media to confuse the American people, to minimize what the Russians did, and of course, to amplify President Trump's denials. And having the president of the United States, you know, countering everything his cabinet members have said, because I will point out that this administration, the Trump administration, actually continued the Obama uh, policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia sort of in its building blocks and its foundation, which is which I thank God for, or I thank them for, I guess, the cabinet members understood, the people who are professionals in our government who are still there from administration to administration, were able to make it clear what the Russians were doing and, our and how our policy could actually work. It just takes time and patience. And so they held that policy in place. It was countered by all of these things President Trump was doing or not doing vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And so it was a weaker version, a much weaker version than, than what President Obama had and what might have been had, uh, of course, Secretary Clinton won. But I think the important thing to remember is that people had their there was disinformation. People had their power positions, their reasons for sticking with President Trump. And then there were individual people who just, Americans, who I think just didn't care. There, there are a lot of people in America who have, are feeling the brunt of the economic dislocations produced by the financial crisis in 2008 and by technological change. And they are just fed up with politics. And many of them found that Donald Trump either was better than the alternative, or they actually, you know, bought into his whole weird, you know, proto-fascist um, identity, and that's why they're still supporting him. Cybersecurity is clearly a key issue here when we look at Russia, and they've successfully, according to the U.S. intelligence community, infiltrated not just the election systems or the election process, but they've managed to infiltrate various sort of tech areas, the electrical grid and, and so on, which poses a significant threat to stability in the United States. Despite that, the Republican Party, mainly under one man, Mitch McConnell, has intentionally blocked this election security bills. Obviously, at this stage uh, of our conversation, the fate of the Senate is still up for grabs with those two seats in Georgia. But that aside, what steps do you think could be taken by a Biden administration directly rather than having to rely on Congress, which is which is still in the balance, to protect the US from foreign interference and, and cyber threats, which is going to be a growing issue as technology becomes more and more prominent in everyone's lives? Well, we have... We have a, a, a big problem relative to cybersecurity and also just voting security. And Speaker Pelosi should get a lot of credit because I actually think it was the first piece of legislation mm. she passed with the new Democratic Congress when she became Speaker again, which was a piece of legislation that 
address every aspect of voter security. So not just cybersecurity, but also the integrity of the vote. And all of these things that now Donald Trump is claiming are flawed in our voting system that actually turns out weren't flawed in this electoral system, but still need to be defended because we do, we did see voter suppression, you know, in the midterm elections last time and attempts at voter suppression also in this election. So that th there are two aspects. So there's a voter suppression and integrity of the vote and then cybersecurity. The president can do a lot um, on his own or her own, you know, steam. So a new president, president-elect Biden uh, can empower the Department of Homeland Security to take action to have the federal government actually help states and localities ensure that they have voter security. When I was running, as you mentioned earlier this year in New York, um, unsuccessfully in the primary for the Democratic um, nomination for a, a congressional seat, uh, many people asked me, can the government help us? And I said, well, yes, if you have a willing a president, a Department of Homeland Security. And then the other component of it is having someone working directly for the president, a cyber czar like you had under President Obama, who is really scanning the horizon for not just the immediate threats, but the future threats and organizing the government to be more, more vigilant and adept. Speaking of cybersecurity, the Trump administration has alleged that various tech apps and companies pose a threat to national security. They specifically targeted TikTok and other nations have raised concerns about this sort of issue. Do you think we should be concerned about the potential digital national security threat that these apps and technology that a lot of people just download use, engage with without doing the proper research behind it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, first of all, we have had for a while threats posed by the Chinese and other actors through apps and other cyber measures. And our the American export control system, the, the American industry, government, I mean, we're woefully ill-equipped. We know that members of Congress don't even understand the technology because, you know, when Facebook and others go up and testify, they're, they're, using, they're using the terminology, you know, in a completely, you know, inappropriate fashion. Um, so these are the people who are supposed to protect American citizens, business, and, and the government um, from malign actors, uh, foreign malign actors. So we need to, we need to put more resources and I'm, when I mean resources, it's not just money, it's really the attention and the smart people on these issues towards protecting American interests, but in a way that doesn't, of course, completely cripple our trade, because we are, with China, for example, very much still in a global economy. And as much as you know, President Trump made noises, you know, as if he wanted to separate um, American, you know, business from Chinese business, it's not possible. And um, most would say it's not desirable. And so we need to balance those things and focus on the, 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 the worst threats, I would say, and on keeping the American edge from a national security perspective when it relates to technology. How should a government go about addressing that when there's a, a, a clear concern here that obviously younger people in particular are less willing to listen on this as you mentioned there are government officials members of congress who don't even understand what they're having to scrutinize and address 
when members of Congress don't understand this and when young people aren't willing to listen to these individuals that they, without sounding too offensive, think are, are, you know, outdated, how do we address that threat? So I think those micro ideas are really important. But before you can get to them, I think you need more education. So on the on the side of educating the young people, and especially young people in Silicon Valley, I think you know they need to understand whether they're U.S. citizens or not, because many of them in the workforce there are not. But they need to understand that when you're in America and you're working as a company in America, you benefit from our democracy, you benefit from our openness as a society. You have a lot of protection and you have a lot of ability to compete. Uh, that comes at a price. I mean, all of this money we put into our intelligence community, our military, I mean, that's all defending our democracy and defending the right of these companies to continue to innovate and provide important things that American consumers want and also that the government wants. So th those things don't come at no cost. And so I think, I think shining a light on what America does, if you know, in, in order to provide that level playing field, that platform that companies benefit from, a safe place where you can operate, you know, more or less competitively, um, more or less, I mean, the opportunity is of course sometimes skewed, but you have opportunity. Um, on the other side, you need to, as we just <laughs> agreed, educate members of Congress. And there you can do it. We found that in the nuclear era, what helped was setting up a committee in, in and there was a committee, um, I think it was a joint committee. I should, I need to go back and research it a little bit more, but there is, there is a committee that was organized specifically to educate members of the House and Senate about nuclear matters, right? And so that they could legislate smartly about America's nuclear capability. And of course, what we need to do about, to deter other countries what we need to do to limit nuclear weapons, uh, not just in the US arsenal and other arsenals, but limit the proliferation. All those things required a little bit of scientific and technical know-how, and we were able to organize that. And there have been uh, efforts in the House in particular to give that, that office new life and to inject into it kind of a responsibility for, for other technical matters, scientific matters. We've looked at some of the existing threats and the threats that are coming down the line in the future. And for a moment, I just want to take a step backwards here to look at something that you worked quite heavily on before your appointment to the Defence Department, which was you served as the executive director of the Commission on the Prevention of Weapons of Mass Destruction, Proliferation and Terrorism. That was back in 2008. And since then, while the recommendations that were put forward in that report were on the whole adopted by the Bush and Obama administrations, we've seen the risk of nuclear conflict, bioterrorism grow. How does yeah. America work to address the threat that these weapons pose? No, I mean, that, that report, we, we didn't address chemical, although, of course, you saw the Russians use chemical weapons, the nerve gas in... Um, the nerve agent in, in, in the United Kingdom. But we assessed that the threat was greatest from bio, bio terror or pandemics and nuclear, obviously nuclear proliferation, nuclear, nuclear incidents, use of nuclear weapons in any, in any way, shape or form. And 
the Obama administration did, as you said, adopt a lot of our recommendations, including we, we now know because the Trump administration dismantled it, but you know, the office that was responsible for looking at and, and following the and preparing for the eventuality of a global pandemic. That was dismantled, unfortunately, but that it was established by the Obama administration. They have literally a notebook on it so that I guess President-elect Biden can reestablish it. There's a lot, though, that we that also we didn't. So also under the Obama administration, we made progress vis-a-vis Iran, um, unfortunately not with North Korea and not really with the growth of the number of weapons that India, Pakistan, and China have produced over the last several, you know, couple of decades or since 2008. And that is something that I think the Biden administration will have to deal with. We have to, first of all, you know, make sure that we keep the cap on the strategic weapons between the United States and Russia. We have an additional problem there though, that the Russian military doctrine allows for the use of nuclear weapons in order to protect the existence of the state, which they define what the, you know, defending the existence of the state is, which opens up a possibility of nuclear use at lower levels, at at tactical levels. And so we need to address that with the Russians. It's very dangerous. They also, of course, abrogated the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which was a treaty put in place effectively to make sure there were no nuclear weapons in Europe, um, which which affected potentially our allies and US troops stationed in Europe. Meanwhile, we have China, North Korea, Iran, so we have to come up with creative solutions to those challenges. Obviously, it's all about diplomacy. It's all about negotiating, but negotiating from a position of strength. You de- you get your strength from your own deterrence. You know the 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 fear that the other actor has that you may take some sort of action that would hurt them, um, and and especially if they took a, a similar action. So, you know, we we need to make sure that we have strong deterrence, but more importantly, a very strong firm. Uh, and, and and robust diplomatic effort. While most governments agree, and while most people probably agree, that the complete removal of WMDs is the right way to go, it's obviously proven rather challenging, and there are a lot of people that think it's a, a pipe dream that is unachievable, as there are clearly nations around the world that want to maintain them either as a deterrent, leverage, or a direct threat to others. Do you think it will ever be possible to truly remove WMDs? And if so, do you think one way to do that, as some have suggested, would be for the US to make that first step and say, we'll give them up as a sign that others should? Well, I don't think that... So I I absolutely think it's possible to have a world where nuclear weapons are, are no longer regarded as a weapon or no longer you know, that we eliminate nuclear weapons as a class of weapons. Similar to, I suppose you could say, chemical weapons, even though they do also kind of exist, unfortunately, um, in states where we can't go in and uh, inspect. (laughs) But uh, I think that you can get rid of them, but it would require a lot of, of factors to change. So it's not inconceivable, absolutely it is conceivable. But the problem is 
figuring out how to get all the pieces into place, where it is conceivable, where the international system is organized, whereby nations or states deter one another from attacking one another using other means. Because effectively what happened was the nuclear means came up as the most efficient way to deter other nations from invading you physically or uh, you know, changing your regime, right? That's why nations have these weapons. If you can come up with another way to do it, I think everyone would agree, let's do it because it's because nuclear weapons, not only is it horrific to even think about using them, but even the manufacture, the, you know, the production, the maintenance is, is risky and it's pricey. And certainly humankind can find better uses for its resources. But the problem is, until you have something that substitutes for, for the deterrent value you get for nuclear weapons, you can't, you can't get to that place. So I do think it's possible, but my own imagination doesn't have the solution at this moment. One way that you've suggested at the time of the report that you worked on was that to get governments to make the changes that they need to do on matters like this, it involves threat awareness, uh, generating urgency around that, putting pressure on them. And that's something that arguably could be applied to things like cybersecurity, the threat from potentially apps and technology on that side, things we've talked about earlier in the interview. What would you say is the way that us as the individuals out there can work to try and raise these concerns, bring them into the political debate so that governments have to confront them. At the very least, even if they don't act, they have to be addressing them and and considering them. Okay. So the way that you can do it, and everyone listening to this podcast can do it, I'm not kidding, is read books, watch movies. How do we prevent genocide? We watch like every five or six years or less, there's a movie about the Holocaust of the Jews, right? So that everyone sees it, feels it, empathizes and understands it. Kids are required to read Anne Frank's diary. The same thing, the Japanese who went through the horror, I mean, they experienced a nuclear attack. Those Japanese need to tell their stories. We need to make more movies about it. We need to keep those horrible things alive. And it's just, it's interesting because it coincides with a an, an op-ed, this, this question of yours, <laughs> um, that's running in the New York Times now, saying it's time to scare the American people about the coronavirus, meaning tell them, show them, you know, what happens if you get it, even if you don't have a die of it, what happens to your life? I mean, I saw on CBS, um, the, one of their Sunday broadcasts, they were showing, um, I think it was Krista Berg, um, the singer, um, how he had coronavirus, and number one, he almost died of it, but number two, you see him with a cane, and his entire rehabilitation process is quite, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's moving to watch, and it's taking him a lot of work and effort, so um, I would argue that telling stories, reading, watching movies, those are cultural, you know, keep, keep alive the understanding of how humans can be, unfortunately, we can be really so horrible to one another. So let's keep that memory alive so we try not to do it today. Looking forward at the new Biden administration, one of the important elements will be about rebuilding the trust in the US Intelligence Committee, the trust from people like the Director of National Intelligence, making sure that these authoritative figures, even trust in the medical community, people who've been attacked, positions that have been co-opted by the Trump administration and lost credibility. 
that will be a hugely important role in educating people because people need to know that they can rely on those figures to give them the truth, the honest assessment, even if it's tough, even if it's not politically advantageous for the administration to be upfront with the American people. What do you believe and what would you like to see done to restore the role of the intelligence community in both the political decision-making process, the educating process, to make sure that it's back to the respectable educational force it once was? I mean, yes, I, your question is so spot on because it gets to, before I mentioned you know, the need for government and this new Biden administration to stand up for, for truth. It, in that same vein, the new administration is going to need to stand up for expertise. It's related, right? Science, people who are who have done a lot of studying, who have, understand complex issues, and then can very clearly uh, and directly transmit this to the American people. And trust is something that is very hard to build, but we have to build it and we have to focus on expertise I would say that the experts need to learn how to communicate. You know, someone like what's so great about Dr. Fauci is, you know, he doesn't come off like an egghead. I mean, he, he's able to speak very clearly and directly and tell the American people, you know, wear a mask. Um, and so I think, and, and he can go over the science of it. I think maybe some of that needs to happen, you know, explaining the do droplets, how far they go. You know, I remember being in New York in lockdown and watching a video that I think first came out of Japan showing in a lab setting, you know, exactly it was animated where the droplets go, how far they go and in a room when you're speaking with someone. So um, there are things that we can do to better educate Americans. And of course, honestly, we need to also revamp the entire American educational system <laughs> because um, on the primary school level um, all the way through high school, uh, I believe it's it's the quality is not up to par. We're showing that we've we've even before the pandemic, our ratings on reading and arithmetic are lower than most other developed democracies, um, or in even some non-democracies. We need to in improve what children are learning in school. And then on the higher end, our our higher education. Is, and I'm on the board of a college. It's too expensive. Um, it takes a long time, and many people are not sure whether it's worth the, the, the time, the money, and the effort. And so there's a real, um, I think, opportunity for America to revamp our educational system, which will result in better civilians, better citizens. Finally, where can people find out more about you, your work, and what's next for you after your run for Congress? Are you thinking uh, 2022? <laughs> I think um, I think we have a great member going to New York to represent the 17th Congressional District. Um, my work there is done. Um, I, I hope maybe I can serve again. Um, but in the meantime, you know, anything I can do to help help explain national security issues, foreign policy, I'm happy to do it anytime I can. Evelyn Farkas, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Edward. That was Evelyn Farkas, a national security advisor who serves as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia, and is the former candidate in New York's 17th Congressional District. You can find out more about her on Twitter at Evelyn N. Farkas. That's all for today's episode. 
What did you think about the interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped to make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye.